Is this on? Okay, if we can get started. Is, is this microphone on? Can y'all hear? Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, just a way of reminder, I'm sure you're on the ball and you're aware of this, but our uh, series uh, this time, because of my health issues back in September, we cut it to six lessons, and this is the fifth of six lessons, so uh, it's this today, and then next Monday will be our last one in this series, and then we'll, we'll pick up a, a, different, a new series in February of next year. I will also be teaching a Wednesday night Bible study here, uh, you know, around 615, 630. Uh, it'll be probably up in the Great Hall on the book of Daniel in January. So you can write that down or put it in your perfect memory bank. <laughs> Most of you, that means it'll be erased the minute you walk out of here. <laughs> but uh, just put that down. So we'll be doing a series on Wednesday nights on Daniel in January up here, and we'll have another series here on Monday at lunch, uh, probably starting in February, but uh, we'll be sending out an email for that. Uh, today's study is, uh, is the uh, story in Exodus 19 and 20. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to that. And it's the story of when the, the nation of Israel, it's a totally unique event. It's the one and only time that an entire nation was spoken to directly by God. Never happened before or since. It was the only time. And it scared the people. You, we'll read about it. It was so awesome, so incredible when God came down and spoke to them that the people were scared to death very much like Jerry in today's lesson, movie, uh, <laughs> three pints of Kramer, that would be hard to overcome. All right, uh, today's lesson's about the Ten Commandments. Uh, my favorite joke about the Ten Commandments, Bill Clinton, this is actually a true story, Bill Clinton and the Pope had a big meeting at the Vatican. And it went on and on, and when Bill finally came out of the meeting, the press meet it, uh, met him and said, Bill, how'd it go? How'd your meeting with the Pope go? And he said, well, it went really well, really well. We agreed on 80% of everything we talked about. A few minutes later, the Pope comes out, and they say, how'd, it, how'd the meeting go? And he said, it went terrible. It was awful. They said, wait a minute, Bill Clinton said it went great. He said, 80% of everything you agreed on. And the Pope said, yeah, but we were talking about the Ten Commandments. <laughs> so there's... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so you, you know a little uh, history on the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. They had been slaves there for 400 years. And God, through all the miracles that he did, the 10 plagues on Egypt, he brought them out, made Pharaoh let them go. He, he uh, divided the Red Sea so they could walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. He fought the Malachites for them. And three months after they leave, 
Egypt, they arrive at Mount Sinai. They were following the pillar of fire, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. He led them to Mount Sinai. And he led them there for a purpose, and we'll see that what that was in a minute, because he was going to make them a nation, make a contract, a covenant with them, make them a nation, and give them his perfect moral holy standard to live by that we call the Ten Commandments. And of course, the Judeo-Christian ethic that our lives, our government, our culture is built around, that was all begun right here. Everything, every moral and ethic that you were shaped by as you grew up, our constitution, our way of life was begun here in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. Our formal concept of right and wrong was developed right here. You know, it's uh, estimated there's been like 35 million laws that man has made to try to add to or increase the Ten Commandments, and all they were able to do is have the opposite effect of corrupting them. God's holy standard, and we'll, we'll look at it, is uh, clear, it's timeless, it doesn't change. I mean, here we are, this is about 1400 B.C. 1400 B.C. So here we are, 3, over 3,400 years later. How many of the Ten Commandments has changed? Zero. Nothing. It is timeless. It is absolute. It does not change. It's clear, and it's eternal. It will always be. It always has been, and it will always be be. But what have we done with it? What has America done, especially in the 21st century with the Ten Commandments? There was a book out that I read, uh, a guy named James Patterson wrote the book. It's called The Day America Told the Truth. And what it is, is he did a series of surveys, and he wrote this book about it, of American morals and ethics and their understanding of the Ten Commandments. And after all these surveys, he wrote this book, and it, 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 there's one chapter where you could actually reduce America's new standard of the Ten Commandments, and, and here's how he put it. They, America has taken the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and shall make no, no idols, and now it's any god will do. Any god will do. As long as you have some God and you're some, some kind of faith and you uh, try to keep some moral standard, anything will do. The third commandment, uh, you shouldn't uh, profane the name of God. Now it is God is your good buddy and he won't mind. It's okay. You can use any language you want. And then the fourth commandment the, of uh, observing a day for the Lord set apart for the day is now... There's no point in observing the Sabbath. It's a waste of time. Bill Gates, he had a, a great quote from Bill Gates, in fact. He said, in terms of allocation of time and resources, religion is not efficient. I've got important things to do on Sunday. <laughs> that kind of speaks for America today. The fifth commandment, honor your parents if they deserve it. sixth one, this is the only one that, that's really survived, is don't murder. That They still go with that one. 
Uh, the seventh commandment about adultery is now it's okay to cheat on your spouse if you don't get caught. What they don't know won't hurt them. Eighth commandment about stealing has been changed to, I will steal only from those who won't really miss it. <laughs> this is real. I'm not making this up. This is in the book. The ninth one about lying, I will lie only when I need to. <laughs> and then the tenth one about coveting is this, Desiring stuff is natural and it is good for the economy. <laughs> That's where we are. And what, what is that? They've taken absolute truth, the Ten Commandments, and made it into moral relativism. <laughs> and if you're wondering if this is just us now in the 21st century, no, this is actually mankind ever since the beginning. You can go all the way back to Judges chapter 21, about 1200 B.C., and the text says that at that time everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And God saw it, and it was evil. I mean, basically, people just kind of designed their lives about, you know, if it feels good, do it. And that's what they're doing right now. And if you doubt that, all you got to do is look at the last 20 years all the scandals that have gone on, you know, back in 2001. So much has happened, you've probably forgotten. Enron and WorldCom and Arthur Anderson and Adelphia, Rite Aid, all those scandals that we had at the beginning of this century. And then the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis with Bear Stearns, Lehman, AIG, Countrywide Savings, Fannie Mae, and the list goes on and on, all crooks. I mean, just scandals right and left. I mean, it's obvious. But for sure, I mean, surely our religious leaders have it right, don't they? Our, the theologians, surely they've got it right, don't they? Not so fast. <laughs> I read all these books, and the great image that I will use to portray what religious thinkers is kind of like three different camps. It'd be very much like if you took three different umpires in baseball and you asked them, how do you call, how do you enforce the rules? How do you call balls and strikes? How do you see your role? And the first umpire said, well, you know, in the rules, there's such a thing as a ball and there's such a thing as a strike. They are well-defined in the rules, and my job is to call them the way they actually are. That would be the literalist point of view. Uh, so we would look, that's what we would look at. Biblical truth is literal. But the second umpire has more of a relative view. And this umpire says, no, no, there are balls and there are strikes, but I call them the way I see them. The way I see them. So it's not important what they really are. What's important is how I call them. That defines a ball and a strike. The third umpire is uh, what you might say an egotist. And he says, well, no, no, there are balls and there are strikes, but they ain't nothing till I call them. <laughs> they don't even become one or the other till I say so. <laughs> I bring them into being, you know. 
So they think they have the power to define what truth is. So in our lesson today, uh, we see the, the nation of Israel draw up. And remember, they had been a loosely formed group of 12 tribes that lived there as slaves in Egypt. And so they don't have any ruling, governing principles or, or any leadership other than Moses and, and following the, the pillar of cloud. And what God's going to do, he's promised to take them and give them the promised land that would become Israel, which is now the, currently the land of Canaan at the time. And God said, I'm going to make you a nation and give you the land. So it was a whole new world for them. So how are they going to become a nation with rules and laws and a government? And so he brings them to Mount Sinai with that specific purpose. So in the third month, chapter 19, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai and camped. That, it's just a huge desert. And what, and what he's going to do is take them down to this Sinai mountain, and at the foot of the mountain is this huge plain. It's basically desert, but it's perfect for bringing a whole nation of two or three million people up to the mountain so they can all see up and God is going to descend upon the mountain in all of his glory and he's going to give them the Ten Commandments directly. Did you know that? God actually spoke the Ten Commandments directly. You didn't know that because you saw the movie with Charlton Heston. <laughs> and in the movie, God gave them to Charlton and he came down with a, you know, and so uh, they arrive at the mountain, and they camped in the plain there at Sinai. And uh, verse 3, Moses went up to God. So he goes up to the mountain to, to seek God, and God spoke to him up there. And so in verse 3 through 5, uh, God says to Moses, look, here's what I'm going to do. I want to make a covenant, a contract, a deal with Israel, the nation of Israel, these people gathered here. And I'm going to bring them together as a nation, and I'm going to make them a special people set apart to God, a holy people for my own use. There will be a kingdom of priests. That's the only time that phrase is used in the Bible here. God says, I'm going to make them a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? What, is, what does he mean by that? They are going to be his mediatorial. A priest intercedes or is a mediator between God and man. So what he's saying is, I'm going to reveal myself to the world through Israel. And of course, that's what he did. And he says, I will make you special. I will bless you in every way. But you must honor me as God only and keep my law that I'm going to give you, the Ten Commandments. Now here's where you see the, how incredibly naive the human race is about their moral, ethical ability. Everybody you know says, yes, I'm a good person. I'm a, basically a good guy. Really? We're going to find out today, 
when we analyze the Ten Commandments, if that's true or not. But whether it's true or not, that's the way the human race feels about itself. I'm a good guy, right? I'm a good person. And so when Moses presents this deal, do you want to do this deal? This is what God is offering. Make you a special nation, set apart to him. How about it? What do you want to do? So he gets the elders together in verse 8, and what did they say? They heard the, the offer and they went, they didn't even pause. They didn't even ask what the laws were. I mean, they could have been really hard or something. They just immediately said, we'll do it. It means blessing and peace and prosperity. We'll do it. Right? And that's what we're all like. Oh, there's no problem. I can do that. So all the people answered, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud. I'm going to come down, descend on the mountain in a thick cloud. And you'll see the, the glory of God. You won't see God directly. We couldn't stand that. But we'll see the glory of God and we'll hear God's voice. It'll sound like thunder and lightning. Have you ever had lightning strike relatively close to you? It's the loudest thing I've ever heard, and it just shakes the vibration. I mean, it just scares the heck out of you, right? If you've ever had that. Um, and that's, that's God's voice here. They call this, uh, theologians call this uh, theophany. Theos is the Greek word for God, so God showing him or revealing himself. He comes to them in this cloud down up on the mountain. But before he does that, you're going to have three days, he says, to consecrate yourself. I want you to think about what's getting ready to happen, that I'm coming to you, and I want, to I want you to clean up yourself physically, mentally, and spiritually. I want you to get prepared for God's arrival. And so he tells them, tells Moses to tell them to consecrate themselves and be ready in verse 11. And tell the people that only Moses will be allowed to come on the mountain. Everybody else stay back because the glory of God will like wipe them out. <laughs> and so stay off the mountain. So uh, verse 14, Moses, uh, it gets kind of complicated. Moses is going up down the mountain so many times getting so much direction from God and to tell them but uh, Moses tells them, and they get ready, and they're prepared, and they're at the foot of the mountain, and they gather themselves up, and everybody was there. There wasn't any sick leave that day. No one said, you know, we had a good night last night, Saturday night, so I'm going to sleep in. No, everybody got up to see this, and they came to the foot of the mountain, and they were ready as Moses had told them. So verse 16, so it came about on the third day, just as God said, when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. It was so awesome and so loud 
that this just scared them. And I shouldn't tell you, I won't tell you because this is, you know, a, a G-rated class. But that word for tremble uh, actually means their bowels shook. Whoops, I already said it. I... <laughs> but that's just how scary it was. Can you imagine thunder and lightning speaking to them in that voice? And there's like everything going on there. They, they see and they feel God's power and the thunder and the lightning, the earthquake, the ground shook, and God was shrouded, the mystery of it. He was shrouded in the cloud, but the glory shone out, the holiness of, of his glory, the light, uh, the trumpet blast, huge sounds, and then the authority of his voice like thunder. And if you say, how can you be sure uh, about his voice sounding like thunder? Well, in Deuteronomy 9.19 and Deuteronomy 4.32, Moses recounting this says, remember when we were back there and we heard God's voice like thunder and it scared the poop out of us. Remember that? And they went, yeah, don't ever let that happen again. That was too awesome. That was too much. We can't handle that. And so we, we know that uh, from the other passages as well. And when the sound, the ground, uh, verse 18, the ground, the mountain quake, the earthquake, and the sound of the trumpet was louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. God's voice was like thunder. And then Moses goes up the mountain and he comes back down and, and it gets kind of complicated. But uh, chapter 20, the people are going to hear the Ten Commandments directly from God. And so it says, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, then God spoke all these words, the Ten Commandments, and he, and he sets the stage by saying, hey, remember who I am. I am the awesome Lord God creator of all things that did all those miracles in Egypt that got you out of slavery. I am the God that parted the Red Sea and brought you across on dry land. I brought you out of Egypt, and don't forget it. And what is he saying? I have the right to your worship, your soul worship. So verse 3, you have the first command of the Ten Commandments, the most important one, by the way. And I would tell you that if you obey this first command, all the others will just fall into place. You don't even have to worry about it. You'll just obey the others if you do the first one. But the flip side's correct, too. If you don't, you're going to end up breaking all those others. So the first command that's the first one on purpose is, you shall have no other gods before me. It's all important. No other gods. Only God. And he's going to say, I am a jealous God. That, that's usually used as derogatory for human beings because our jealousy is selfish and hostile. 
Whereas God's is righteous. He deserves our love and our worship. Second command, verse 4, you shall not make any idols for yourself. Don't try to be making something that looks like me. Remember the, the glory and the awesomeness of that theophany when I came. You really think you can make an idol that looks like that? No. Don't make any idols. It will not go well with you or your children to the fourth generation. There will be consequences to idolatry. And then the third commandment in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So don't misuse God's righteous name, but honor it. So not only don't misuse it, but also honor it. Now Israel took it too far. They said, we're, we're going to make sure we don't because we're not ever going to say God's name. They made it a law that you couldn't say God's name. Well, that makes no sense. I mean, in the scriptures in the Old Testament, God's name is like 7,000 times. And so every time they came to it, they said another name, a generic name for God, instead of the real name, Yahweh, Jehovah. No, he's just saying use the, the name of God, but use it with honor and love. Fourth command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, Jesus did a great job, if you wonder, because you probably, as brilliant as this group is, you're already thinking the wheels are spinning. It says, remember the last day of the week, the Sabbath, that's Saturday, and you keep that holy. Well, wait a minute, we, we do it on Sunday. So what's the deal? Jesus did a great job in the New Testament of explaining the meaning of the Sabbath, and it was all about the spirit. Jesus said it's all about the spirit of the Sabbath. He said, God gave you the Sabbath to do good for you, to help you. God knew that we needed at least one day a week where we weren't totally preoccupied with ourselves. Right? That's how you spend the other six days. It's all about me and my empire and my stuff and my family, right? He said, you need one day where your mind gets cleared and you think about more important things like eternal destiny and your relationship with the living God and serving others, right? And it doesn't matter if it's on Saturday or Sunday. If you're on the pro golf tour, it'll be Tuesday or Wednesday. But the spirit of this law is still in effect in the sense that you need to set aside time for the Lord. It's for your benefit. Jesus even said, the Sabbath was created for you, not you for the Sabbath. You know, if you're a legalist, you're going to do just the opposite. You know, we're saved because we keep the Sabbath, you know, like, like Israel thought during Jesus' time, the Pharisees. And Jesus says, no, no, it's just you've got it just backwards. God gave it to you to do you good because you need it. And so the fifth command is in verse 12. 
honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged. Now, if you honor your father and your mother, God will honor you. He'll bless you in that relationship. And that's all about authority, honoring the authority that God created, the natural authority in the family relationships that God created. The sixth commandment, verse 13, you shall not, what's the word? Thank you. I thought somebody might have the King James that says kill, which is interesting because there's a, a cool movie out right now that uh, I can't wait to see, Hacksaw Ridge. And it's about a guy, it's about a guy who had the King James Version, and it said, thou shalt not kill. So when he went into the army during World War II, he said, I'm going to serve, I'm going to do everything, try to save people. But the good book says, thou shalt not kill, so I can't have a gun. Well, the guy's virtuous, and I mean, he ended up getting the Medal of Honor, and it's an incredible story. But he actually had it wrong. The word is, thou shalt not murder. The King James got it wrong. All the other usages of uh, people getting killed wrongly use this same word, murder. And the words that people get killed in war and, and self-defense and like that is actually a different word. Good to know, right? That's what I'm for. <laughs> Seventh command, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Pretty obvious, right? God created the relationship between a man and a woman, and the two became one, and that's the way it's supposed to be. It's the way God made it, and that's the way it works best. Anything else is trouble, <laughs> right? It may seem good for about, you know, a few minutes, but in the future there's trouble. You shall not steal. Clear enough. I mean, these are simple. You can't confuse. You don't get confused with this. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie against anybody. And then number 17 is uh, my personal favorite, and it's one that Paul spends like three chapters in the book of Romans on this one deal. Thou shalt not covet. Paul said, I didn't even know what coveting was until I tried to keep this law. <laughs> and then I found out, just because he was trying to keep it, he had it in his mind that that was wrong, thou shalt not covet. So every time he desired something, he went, oh my God, I'm breaking the law. And it drove him nuts. Read, read Romans 7. He says, I'm trying as hard as I can, I can't do it. I know what I want to do, but the members of my body do something else. Stop, make it stop. And that's the problem. Do you know no other governing body, no other constitution, no other body of laws of any country, no other religion that has laws, has a law that tries to govern your thoughts and intentions? Think about that. Only 
the one true God, can give us a law to keep that governs your thoughts, intentions, your desires. How do you govern that? Well, Jesus laid it out there in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees were asking him all these questions, and he said, you know what? You guys, you break all the laws of the Ten Commandments. And they said, what? So he laid it out. He said, you know what? You say you don't murder, but when you're so angry at somebody, you commit murder in your heart. And to God, that's breaking that law. You say you don't commit adultery. That means you supposedly haven't done that act of unfaithfulness, yet when you lust after a woman to have her, you committed adultery in your heart. So this 10th commandment really affects all the other nine commandments because it, not, it makes it clear that in God's law, it's not just the overt act that God's looking at. God is also judging your heart. All that stuff you fantasize about and think about, it's not just me, is it? <laughs> These guys over here were going, no. <laughs> All that stuff, God knows. God alone can be that judge because God alone knows what's in your heart. So you, ha you have to not only perfectly keep the actions of this law, but you also have to keep it internally as well. I was teaching that to another group, and they went, why, that's impossible. I said, exactly, exactly. So I said, does that give you some idea why you need God's grace? Oh, oh, we've got to have God's grace then, exactly. If you think you can keep these on your own, remember we were saying earlier, I'll, I'll show you how we all break these on a regular basis. We do. And so anybody that thinks they can keep these laws in order to be saved is fooling themselves. And what they're really accomplishing, what God's accomplishing here, because your next question may be, why did he give them laws they couldn't keep? That's crazy. Why would God do that? That's not fair. Well, again, the New Testament explains it really well. Paul in Romans 3 and also in Galatians 3, both of these says, the law is like a teacher that teaches you what you're really like. If you didn't have God's holy righteous standard, you'd be strutting around like most people talking about what a good guy they are and what a good person they are, how they keep the Ten Commandments like the Pharisees did during Jesus' time. But since they actually have the law and they're breaking it, it reveals to them their true nature and what the real problem is. So God gave them his perfect, holy, righteous standard so that they would know that they needed him, how bad they needed him, how bad they needed a Savior.
If you drove down the, the toll road and there's no signs, no speed limit signs, it's open season. You can go 80, 90, 100, but you know you're breaking the law. Now when you're going 80 and it says 65, right? I don't see Don Hausman here. I see Frank. Don Hausman down at Little Sandy Hunting Club used to put his name on everything. And everybody borrowed all his stuff. You could walk through the boathouse and everybody would have something with a big Hausman name on it. And one time I said, why do you put your name on all this stuff? And he said, so people will know whose stuff they're, they're stealing. <laughs> and it's a good point. If it didn't have his name on it, they, they, every time they see his name, they go, well, that's the thing I stole from a houseman. <laughs> and they'd be convicted. That's the Ten Commandments. That's God's law. That's why he gave it. That's, that's the importance of it, to prepare us to have the knowledge that we need a Savior. All right? The joke goes, and atheists, by the way, do you think there was any atheists in Israel this day when God came down and all of his glory, thunder and lightning and earthquakes? <laughs> you think there was any atheists in Israel? None. That's why there's no laws. You think, well, there should be a law that says that against atheism. There weren't any atheists. How could there be? No way. The joke goes an atheist was walking in the woods when he, he was attacked by a bear. And he yelled, God, help me. And a voice from above said, oh, atheist, so now you're a Christian? And the atheist said, well, that would be hypocritical. But please, thought he was really being smart, please make the bear a Christian. And so God says, very well, I will. Then the bear put his paws together and prayed, Lord, thank you for this food you've provided. <laughs> so why the Ten Commandments? The birth of a nation. Now they're a nation together with a set of rules that govern over them. Secondly, uh, to, as we said, reveal God's holy standard. If we're going to please God, we need to know what he expects. And to establish a healthy fear of God. Boy, they had it. At the end of the deal, look what they say. Verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning and flashes, and they stood at a distance and trembled. And they said to Moses, from now on, you talk to God and then speak to us and tell us what God said. Let not God speak to us again lest we die. That's how scary it was. And Moses says, okay, that's what we'll do. Don't be afraid. He did this to test you, to put the fear of God in you. And, of course, we all need a good dose of that kind of puts an end to that notion that Americans have that God's your good buddy, your Santa Claus, or your benevolent granddaddy that slips you a $100 bill every time you go, you know. Not so fast with that. 
Secondly, as I said, to serve as a teacher, a revealer of human nature, who we really are, what we can and can't do. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, the law of God is a mirror. It's a mirror. We can get a good look at ourselves. The purpose of a mirror is to reveal to you that your face is dirty. But the mirror can't wash your face. The law can't wash you clean. But the purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the soap and water. The purpose of the law is to drive us to the Lord to cleanse us from all unrighteousness through Christ. What is the law not? It's not the ten suggestions, which America seems to think is what it is. It's not the ten suggestions. But it's God's revelation to us. So we have God's perfect, holy, righteous standard. And like looking in a mirror, we see our weaknesses in keeping it. We know what our thoughts and our intentions and our lusts are. And like Paul, we cry out to the Lord. <laughs> Who will save me after Paul couldn't keep that law? Over and over and over for so many years, he finally cried out, Lord, who will save me from this body of death that separates me from you? Because I keep breaking your law. And he says, praise be to God. He sent Jesus Christ, our Lord. He will save us. So, Let me say that going back to the purpose of the law in Galatians 3 and James chapter 2, 10 says this as well. Both authors say, speaking about the law, they say, shut up. <laughs> That's kind of rude. What do they mean by that? He says, the law was given to shut you up. Everybody we know boasts. Everybody we know is like vain, talking about how great they are and all their accomplishments, what good people they are, all the things they've given to, the committees they've chaired, blah, blah, blah. And what Paul and James are saying is the perfect holy standard of God shuts us up from any vain comments, any lofty thoughts about ourselves. Because Jesus is the only one that was able to keep the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to change the law. I came to fulfill it. How so? Jesus kept the law. God's perfect holy standard. And more important to us, Jesus enables us to, in effect, keep the law of God, be holy in God's eyes, because he has atoned for our sins. Jesus has fulfilled the law in God's eyes through his work on the cross. So when we go fully into this law, especially when we get to number 10, and we realize we regularly violate all this law, we suddenly... It, it should reveal to us the much bigger extent of Christ's atonement. How big 
was the sacrifice that Christ made. Most people just kind of take it for granted. Yeah, he, yeah, he did that, and I'm saved. <sighs> but when you start thinking about how many of these laws you break and how often you break them, when you look in that mirror, which is the law, then you realize how great the atonement is. Jesus told a parable about this. He was trying to get, Peter said, how many times do we have to forgive these creeps? Can we limit it to seven? And Jesus told the parable, and he says, well, there was a servant, you know, who owed it, and, and his master forgave him, you know, uh, and, it, and he owed uh, $100 billion, and his master forgave him. And then somebody owed him, and he wouldn't forgive it. And Jesus said, if you've been forgiven $100 billion, which is kind of a metaphor for our sin, then how much more should you then forgive people for a few pennies because they were mean to you or they did something you didn't like? That's the parable. And it just tells you how big in God's eyes and should be in our eyes, the atonement is. How much sin that Jesus actually overcame. A mountain. A mountain. And therefore the atonement is so important to us and it's such a big deal to us. And we realize what God has done for us and how much he's accomplished. Because God's given us that law as a, as a mirror to truly see ourselves, and in doing so, understand how big the sacrifice Jesus made was. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word, with your perfect, holy, righteous standard, so we can understand who you are. And looking in the mirror at ourselves, we understand how far short we fall. Therefore, we need you. We must have Jesus as our Savior. And I pray, Lord, that if anybody here has not made that commitment, they would do so today. They would realize what you've done for them and receive Jesus today. And we pray all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Chris said that.